I'm Tim Richard. And I'm Michelle Bolin. And you're listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. More Train, Less Pain. Hey guys, Tim here. Joel Smith has been on my radar for the better part of three years, ever since Michelle did a guest spot on his podcast, Just Fly Sports Performance. If you listen to any episode, which I highly recommend you do if you like this show, his passion and curiosity for the world of physical preparation literally jumps out of the headphones. It's often said that the best way to figure out what your true passion is, is to answer the question, how would you fill your day if you no longer had to work for money? For Joel, I have absolutely no doubt that he would continue to fill his day, reaching out to some of the greatest thinkers in our field, having lively and intellectually stimulating discourse, and relentlessly self-experimenting with new training methods. Additionally, I respect Joel's interest in having dialogues with guests that are considered out of the mainstream of strength, conditioning, and rehab. While I certainly don't agree with all of what his guests have to say, there's something truly liberating about hearing a successful coach or therapist approach the same problems we try to solve every day from a completely different vantage point. And now for the official episode introduction. I sit down with Mr. Elastic himself, the Usain Bolt of the fitness podcasting world, Just Fly Sports Performance's Joel Smith, for some free-flowing discussion pertaining to play, structure, jump training, learning, and engagement. We attempt to answer, how did Joel and I approach toed out feet and athletes from a health and performance perspective? What are the use cases of barefoot training and orthotics respectively? What are the easiest ways to integrate plyometric and jump training into the programming of a gen pop client? Where does play fit into the context of an athlete's training session or training week? Can there be such a thing as too much structure in training? What do machine learning and human motor learning have in common? What do the terms ancestral and transhumanistic have anything to do with the world of physical preparation? What key performance indicators did Joel and I care the most about in ensuring long-term client success? And we answer much, much more. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy it. And we are live with Joel Smith of Just Fly Sports Performance, recording live from his post-apocalyptic zombie bunker podcast studio slash gym. Joel, how the hell are you? I'm good, Tim. Thanks for having me. Yeah, here from here from my hideout, my bunker. So uh, yeah, let's get to it. I'm excited. Right on. We have a, a lot of very exciting topics to broach today. But first and foremost, just kind of a, a point of personal curiosity for me. What is a what does a typical day or typical week look like for you these days? I know you just kind of moved across the country a year or two ago, but are you remote training? Are you live training? What kind of people do you work with? Yeah, it's it's funny when I moved out here from California a year and a half ago. I didn't know what my daily schedule was going to look like. I knew I had a, a pretty good like revenue stream training online clients when I got out here that would at least hold me up. Um, and then as I've kind of moved along a lot of it, well, basically three days a week, I am training clients in the afternoons, um, but not a lot, but two to three, sometimes four clients a day. So three times a week. Uh, the other days are basically days where I'm doing podcasting, content creation, uh, just like all that kind of stuff. So website stuff and, and whatnot. So it's, it's a nice split. Um, I think the, the days that are only content creation and, and website and podcast stuff can get really long. Cause I don't, I don't like to do the same thing all day. Like if I had to train people all day, I think I would, I know, I don't think I would get really burnt out doing that. If I sit in front of a computer all day, I will get burnt out doing that. So 
I've found this. Um, and I remember when I moved here to Ohio, I was talking with um, Zach Evanesh uh, about like just business stuff. And I think it's commonly like said, like, what's your perfect day? What does it look like? And I'm moving in on that. I actually feel, I feel pretty good about it. So yeah, we're in this nice, happy balance point right now. It's, it's nice too. Cause I do. Um, and I, I think pretty much everyone that runs in the circles that we do does kind of like a mix of content creation and remote services and then in person, like doing the thing itself. And I find, you know, for me personally, the further I get from doing the in-person work, like for me, that's, that's physical therapy and training. Um, the, everything else really starts to suffer. And, and even if it's only five or 10 hours a week of making sure that I'm actually doing in-person physical therapy, it's like, that is the, the stoke that can then carry me on to like more of these higher level content oriented, remote oriented things. Yeah. It always has to come back to experience. That's the thing is I never, I would have never, and I knew it, I guess I always felt like I've been moving here. The last resort would be just all online. And I mean, I, I enjoy putting programs together, but a- a- anything I do too much, like if I had 15 online programs to write in a weekend, that's going to destroy, you know, that'll just, it'll really mess me up. So trying to diversify and, and get a good life balance is key, but always having that in-person experience is so key. Like for me, this being able to work with clients in person and then whatever I'm learning also doing myself and on some level has been really important to have this like full circle experience of all this stuff that we would call training or movement or whatever. Could not have asked for a better segue, which is exactly what I would expect from a master podcast host such as yourself. Uh, Speaking of, you know, liking a little bit of everything and needing some variety, talk to me a little bit about what your own training looks like these days. So if you want to give me like your, your, you know, prior day or kind of the overall bird's eye view of the past week. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I, I, um, in a way that's, I, hopefully it's not selfish, but just in a way that helps me to perceive and learn, uh, my own training has been a, a crucial point of my own life since I was probably like 12, 11, 12, like, you know, digging up the, my dad's weight set and putting it in my bedroom to, to lift like whatever I wanted or whatever. And, the fundamental focus, I think, of why I do what I do has changed, at least how I understand it. I think, you know, as a young kid, I'm, I'm trying to get stronger. I want to be like, look bigger and more muscular and all the reasons that I think, and not to beg on those, that reason, I think that's perfectly viable. Um, but now it's definitely moved towards this, uh, whatever I'm doing, I want to experience it. Um, like if I, like just yesterday I went out to do, um, I do two speed days a week. Just, this is how my week kind of shakes out is usually it's two kind of speed locomotion type days where I'm just, I'm sprinting, but a lot of it is ex- I'm, I'm experimenting with sprinting. Um, usually through things I've learned a lot of things, Darian Barr has taught me. And so I'll, I'll be playing with those and getting a workout. And then two days is more strength oriented type type training. And then two days is often, uh, more of an aerobic uh, recovery stimulus. And for those, I'm usually going to go out in the woods, um, and get in nature and I'll do runs and crawls and just different ways, uh, experiencing things out there. Uh, one of the biggest whole sit uh, and, and with all this, the, it's like, well, why are you training? I think is an important question to ask Tommy, John, who's been on my podcast a few times. One of the big things that he'll ask his clients, whether they're there for performance or chiropractic care or whatever, it's all continuum, but is why are you here? Like, and so for me, it's, I think, cause I'm 38, I, I was a track and field athlete, a decent one in college at, at 38, I am not going to set PRs anymore. So why do I, why do I do it? And I think the, 
the thing that I'm always shooting for is just the joy of learning and seeing what my body can do. And um, moving towards, uh, I was at Rafe Kelly's Return to the Source retreat, which is like, uh, it's almost hard to describe, but it's like, is it like a parkour camp in the woods? Like, what is it? But it's all about like how the physical can can enhance or, or mirror or complement or work with the, the mental and emotional development. And so I'm just, um, I'm a lot more attuned to just how do I, how do I holistically develop myself? through just all these different physical experiences, the sprint stuff and the helps me to train my online clients better and my in-person clients better. Cause I learn and I can play with ideas and same with the strength. But then I think the recovery days are very much about how can I enjoy this maximally? How can I connect with nature maximally? Making sure I wear like barefoot style shoes, you're feeling the ground. Um, that's been really important to me, especially as I move towards this, I don't know, I guess you call it middle middle age, I'm not going to jump as high, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to touch, you know, X amount of height over the backboard, um, the square in the backboard anymore. So anyways, sorry, long winded answer, but that's the, the long and short of where my workouts land these days. I appreciate that level of detail. And I think my story mirrors yours in a lot of ways. Um, a couple of years ago, I think when I was, when I was just about 30, I, I moved to Boston and didn't, didn't really know too many people there I moved there for my now wife. And in an, in an attempt to kind of recreate some semblance of a social circle, I joined a sub elite track club and it was pretty cool. Like after then two hip surgeries and, you know, like seven or eight years removed from any kind of like speed work, I was able to get fairly close to PRs and, or my college PRs in the 400 and the 800. Um, but now we're kind of sitting like, you know, three, three years removed of that. I'm definitely like, I'm, I'm you know, north of 30. Um, and eventually if the, if the only why of training is to make that time go down or make the, you know, make the weight that's on the barbell go up, like you're going to run into a ceiling eventually. And I think I, I really, you know, I've, I've been a big fan of your podcast for probably three years now. And like, I, I credit a little bit of the mindset shift that I've been able to enjoy to some of the content that you've been producing. Like, instead of, okay, I'm, I'm going to go to track and run eight sets of, you know, 12 second hundreds. Well, like let's make them around 12 or slightly slower, but how can we experience these things differently? I know when Michelle and I were on your podcast, like a year and a half ago, we talked about like the single, the single arm strides and single arm running. And it's like, I think there's such, there's such beautiful terrain to be explored there. Like how do we take the speed back slightly, but just experience running in a different way? Yeah, a hundred percent. And I was actually just, I haven't talked to a Darian bar and, or I've talked to him, but I haven't seen him in person since I left California. Um, yeah, almost two years ago now. Yeah, I'm, I lose, I lose track. No, it's a year and a half ago. Anyways, uh, he was at uh, Mike Kozak's place at Sore Fitness in Columbus, and I drove up there on a Sunday and just was going through some of the things that he was working on. And Adarian shifts pretty quickly. Like he'll shift from something about the feet to something about the hands to something about he'll kind of go throughout different spots in the body. And to me, it's it's so interesting because it's like I, if nothing else, it's just noticing what that part does, that role that minutia the body does in your running that you had no idea and but to me it's just a testament of we are like this thing that we are walking around in this this body is is i as jay schrader would say it we're all miracles like this thing is this thing is the most advanced piece of machinery and we i think we, we have like no idea just how amazing this thing is it's producing movement and so just to be playing around with different things or noticing different things that my body is doing when I'm doing these skills completely on its own and just respecting that and then working with it is, is so cool. And yeah, like you said, 
it, at some point it becomes, it can't just be like, oh, I just have to run faster. I have to, if it's all quantitative, you're going to get burned out. And I think part of the, the important thing too, is even in our high performance years, it, it's, I, we're not thinking, I think we don't start to think of the numbers so hard until we actually get a little older and we start to run into like barriers. And I, I believe at least when we're younger, a lot of times it's just, it's like you said, you have a community, you have people you're running with, you have, you're enjoying it for what it is and the flow state of it. And the results take care of themselves. <laughs> and it's when we get too consumed in numbers, then I think we start to lose the joy of it. And so, yeah, actually the community, like if I had, a, I, I have a few training partners here and there, but uh, if the community thing is something I've been missing. And so I think, and I know for a fact, if I got a group of people I was training with, I would probably improve like three to 5% in all my markers. I can pretty much guarantee it. So <laughs> the sad, the lonely training road is never the most successful one. You need, you need a group. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, that, that, that would be an interesting topic to dive into too. I've always found um, for myself and the clients that I manage, like a mixed approach tends to work really, really well, especially like, I know you're a big fan of more for lack of a better term, like introspective work, like inward looking work, let's feel something. And I think that doing that kind of work is tricky to do with other people, but for these more output oriented days, it's like, I'm, you know, we're never going to be as fast as we were when we were like trying to race someone on a track. Like there's, there's something that's there's something very primal that's brought out in that context. Hundred percent. Yeah, my the the clients I have who have the most success are not the ones who generally are not the ones who just train by themselves, but people who they, they'll play pickup basketball once or twice a week, and they're like in they'll they'll warm up and they jump so much higher after that or whatever they want to do because there's people around. It's a community, and just the game warms you up in an incredible way as well. But you can't like <laughs> you cannot warm yourself up as play basket playing basketball against yourself you have to have other people around to get warmed up to be able to reach the highest outputs and the games elicit that too I, i've had experiences where we'll play games and run 20 meter sprints in between games and i had people drop um let's see a 20 meter i had a kid drop almost two tenths which is uh, three seconds i mean that's like a seven six to seven percent improvement just by playing games to warm up rather than a standard all right let's do some a skips and some b skips and this and that manufactured like stuff that that we made up versus let's just put the body in an environment where it can be maximally stimulated and let that take care of it so yeah i, I just i it's cool to see and it's really important to have that group um that group engagement at least from time to time it doesn't have to be all the time it doesn't have to be every training session it probably shouldn't be on a level but yeah yeah, and, and I know like you're a big fan of play and games. I, I've heard you reference pickup basketball as like the, the most perfect warm-up to any kind of jump or power session. How do you juxtapose? Okay, so I mean we're we're both trainers and strength coaches to some extent. So I think in terms of an ego perspective, we like to have things clearly organized and have a means to progress each thing like to have Excel spreadsheets. We like to have structure. How do you make play exist within sort of the need to impose complexity and control in a training program? Like how do you think about that dichotomy? Yeah, that's a great question. And so, I mean, you, that whole thing has been something that's been on my mind. Um, I think it's like, it's going to be a bigger and bigger thing. I think in the next few years of my career, and it's almost like you could, you could extrapolate it out to even um, like transhumanism versus a more ancestral view of human humanity. Like 
uh, transhumanism being like, well, the thing that distinguishes humans is we learn to make tools. We use our intellect tools, eventually technology. And, you know, that whole, like just a very technological view of humanity versus ancestral. We've gone too far from who we are as human beings. You look back at all these, um, like, I mean, depends on how far you want to go with it, but there's things that people pre-technology, pre-electricity age could do from a, like a smell perspective or a feeling the ground perspective to pick up on like where their tribes members were and, and, and all this stuff that is kind of, so it's like, what's the balance, right? Like between it, and we've seen it though in athletics. So you could take that and say, okay, like, uh, like it was like Lolo Jones with the Red Bull project where everything was hyper teched out, like, which is the opposite of play in my mind. Like everything is measured. Everything is just d- 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 feedback on all these little numbers and I, and she didn't do that well when everything was like super teched out. I, I don't remember what she got in the, the Olympic trials, but it wasn't successful. And Hank Kreienhoff, who's a legend coach from the Netherlands, has talked about a similar thing with some Dutch speed skater where they took that total, I guess you could call it transhumanistic approach where everything's measured, everything's technology, da, 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 and did terrible. <laughs> and so on the other hand, you just have pure ancestral, like, which is just play, not structured, just fully purposeful and functional to whatever you're doing. We're not really going to, we wouldn't like necessarily bring any tech or tools or even quantify stuff. So anyways, all that to be said is how do I create a training session that goes in the direction that I want to go using the tool and power of play. And so I'll just, I'll use an example from what I've been up to recently that I think can encapsulate uh, maybe those ideas. And I'm not a big, in training, I'm not a big tech person. I only use as much as necessary to gain uh, and I think I could use more and that's fine. But um, I mean, I'll use basically sprint gates and occasionally um, jump, like any sort of jump mat type thing, like for contact times or reactive strength times is really just more of a teaching tool. It's like, this is what it feels like to get off the ground this fast. You had no idea you were on the ground that long. So to give the feeling of that, I would say the same thing, even with bar speed monitors and to give the feeling of being explosive. So all that so hopefully that sets the stage and I can get, I'm sorry if I'm long-winded. I think it's just because it's something I'm thinking about a lot. Um, just because we see these big organizations that are so, everything is about peer review. It's got to be peer reviewed, evidence-based, whatever that means. <laughs> because research can be, you know, it depends on a lot of things. You have to actually get into the research itself. Who are the subjects? What was the protocols? How did you review the data, et cetera, et cetera. And then on the other hand, we just have play and just, and one of the things that has always stuck with me, and I've talked about Rafe Kelly. Uh, Rafe Kelly, for those of you who don't know him, he's uh, parkour was like a co-founder of Parkour Visions or founder. He was in that. Um, just has been a big parkour general human movement guy. And at age, I want to say thirty-seven or thirty-eight, he said he he used to train the vertical, like the standard vertical jump training, for example, like all the you know the squats and the box jumps and a precise program in his early twenties, and then. Um, with the intention of dunking a basketball, jumping high. And then later at age 37, 38, just doing parkour, basically, maybe some strength, but I don't think it was a big deal. It wasn't like a program, if anything, but the main thrust of what he was doing is parkour and nature parkour and doing like, just think jumping from rock to rock in different ways, all sorts of different combinations. And he could jump higher and more easily at age 37, 38, doing just almost a pure play version of training versus a more structured version of training. And so anyways, that begs the question, what, how much should we do of each? Right? Like, and so uh, I'll bring that around. So one of the things I've been a fan of recently 
is just using, uh, let's say I have athletes and their goal is to make them more plyometrically able, better jumping, more reactive, more bouncy. Um, I could do uh, measure the RSI on the mat, get a baseline. Then we do a bunch of bounce-based training in the gym, like a bunch of like sprudiment type hops, which is fine. Like that's that's fine. Like single leg, multi-direction, face each way. The way that I've kind of gone more to, so here's the play-based version. Or then, okay, so let's say here's the non-play-based version. Then let me tell you the play-based version. Non-play-based, get an output, do a bunch of hops, do a few depth jumps and drops or low hurdle hops or whatever, your, your basic plyometrics, right? Test, retest, you got better. Cool, that works. I'm not saying it doesn't. Here's how I think you can make that better. Is I've been a big fan of here's the gym, here's the turf area. If you anyone follows me on Instagram, I never, I never assume anyone does. Uh, and actually, I don't. To be honest, I don't really like posting. I just like, I just like training. I don't like. But anyways, there's there's um, a video where there's like four or five boxes laid out. So I have this space. It's about 25 meters um, long turf. Put out five boxes. I'll have a group. We'll start just going over the boxes. I'll say first, you can go over them any way you like. You just have to touch it with one hand, you know, just one hand vaults over each box. Okay, now two hand vaults. Now jump and you have to put one foot on each box. Now jump and you have to hit two on each box. Or maybe it's a combination. Maybe it's two hands, two feet, two hands, two feet. And if you watch people going over these boxes, you actually realize there's so much plyometric activity happening without anybody even knowing it. Because in a one-hand vault, well, you're landing and redirecting. How is that not plyometric any differently than anything else that I'm doing for the most part? I mean, yeah, you could argue, yeah, if I'm bouncing and doing like little hops, sure. And I do still do some of that stuff, but I'll get around to it. Um, but, but now it's under the context of play and flow states. And I believe when, when things are happening like that, like watch kids on the playground. They do an immense amount of running and jumping and landing to the point where if we took them doing that and just had them drop off the same box, instead of them jumping off the slide, you know, 50 times, 50 different ways, we had them jump off a box the same time, you know, exact same way, 50, it, they would probably hurt themselves at some point. So, and it wouldn't be fun. They would be like, oh, this is stupid. Like, you know, and so anyways, I'll take this and then we can intensify it. So let's say, okay, now it's going to be, um, maybe it's box to box. You have to find two boxes and you have to do leap consecutively without touching the turf over those two only. So now they get to be creative and pick two boxes they think they can personally clear. So now you still have the plyometric effects coming in, but now you have this mental, this risk calculation taking, oh, I think I can do those two. You have this challenge that you're not sure you can do, but you get to see. And so you create this almost like this liminal space. It's like, oh, I hope, I think I can do this. And then you get to break through. And so you're creating these breakthroughs in the course of a session. Um, so, and you know what, if you just want to use that as the warm up and then do a couple hurdle hops after you, I believe you will find that you have a much better session by the time you get to whatever you want to quantify, it will be much better because you've fully engaged the athlete and they had fun. And if you're in the private sector, Michael Zwiefel said this when he was on my show is and when he moved, if you're in the college sector, athletes have to do what you say. And your, your job security is not based on whether or not those athletes like you that they have to at least tolerate you. They can't, if they hate you, you, you might end up losing your job or you probably will, but they're, they have an expectation. They're going to do what you say. It doesn't matter. And you can do the most boring workout for them. And your job is fine. Go into the private sector, totally different. You're going to do this boring workout athletes, you know, oh, I guess I need to do this to get better at my sport that I've already been super pressured into specializing in this one sport. And now I need to run faster too. You know, I'd say, I mean, they're going to have fun with it, but it's not, 
It's not multi-engaging the way that you can when you create a play-based situation. And what are you teaching that athlete about movement? Like imagine an athlete specializes at 14 or 15 in their sport, and then they train with you and the training is just, you know, you know, quantify, quantify, be better at this, be better at this, be better at this. What, when that athlete finally quits the sport, what are they going to think about training? You know, it's just, it's that it's not, it's exploring. It's fun. Like I can have a blast just putting out five boxes and just playing and I, I'll get an amazing workout. So um, yeah, you can, you can modulate that stuff any way you want. You can make it more intense, less intense. You can put, uh, you can do a hurdle at the end. I can do three boxes and then have a hurdle at the end. If you want to really get up, you know, and jump high, you could have athletes do obstacle courses and have racing in context. So that's just like, that's just one example. And honestly, you could just play games too. You could just say, all right, we're going to play handball. We're going to play this. And then we'll do some outputs. Then we'll do the sprints, but let's use the play to warm up for that output. I think that's the most, I was actually going to do a post about that today. Like you cannot go wrong by 20 minutes. If you have 60 minutes in a session, 10 to 20 minutes of exploration, exploration and play, you will never regret replacing that. And I think that's like the thing that if I can like be an assistant and carrying out a message to the coaching community, to the athletic community, it's just, Hey, just trade the movement prep stuff that you would do for play and just see what happens and look at the smiles on people's faces. You will not go back. <laughs> I guarantee you will not go back. And so just me learning more about that has been really one of the most joyful things in my coaching in the last few months. And, and really, I mean, I've been doing it for a while, but, but the last few months, especially it's been really good. Yeah, I think too. Uh, I, I think on your podcast a couple months ago, uh, you and your guests were talking about. I think it was you coaching your um, your daughter's soccer team or something. And I, I think you referred to it as like the giggle test or something. But like yeah. essentially, like you you want these you know four, five, six year olds to be making a lot of noise by the end of the warm up to be like laughing and talking, and like you've elevated the level of energy that they can then apply to the next task. And I think that that's. Again, like I go back to this whole trainer's ego thing. I think we like to think that we understand this massive complexity. And I think we like to think, oh yeah, in order to hit good squat depth, we need to do this series of hip stretches. And like you said, we kind of failed to appreciate just the amount of complexity that occurs when the human organism is fully immersed in a task, is playing, is just experiencing. Like that's an entirely different thing that I don't think anyone fully understands the implication of versus we're going to we're going to strip out certain elements that we hypothesize are most effective for movement preparation and we're just going to hammer those in a really specific way like it's I, I really like what you said about like the transhumanism versus the ancestral viewpoints of each thing and i think about so half of what i do is um, working with a healthcare technology company and then the other half is more traditional training and physical therapy. But uh, within the technology space, there's something called machine learning, where essentially you, like, you, you give a machine a massive data set and you ask it to solve a problem and it'll generate a solution to that problem, but you don't know why that solution works. And I think about that in the context of this play stuff that we're thinking of, like when we play pickup basketball or ultimate Frisbee or the box game that you laid out. And by the way, I'll link to all the people that you mentioned and that post in the show notes. Um, when you do these things, they work, they work better than isolated drills. And frankly, we have no fucking clue why, like it could be any of the things that you just said, it could be the 
competition with yourself and others. It could be the engagement. It could be the novelty. It could be the fact that you're never going to do that, that activity the same way twice. So like, we, we don't know. So it's like, is the, you know, should we be trying to understand that to greater and greater degrees so that then we can strip out the components that we work? Or should we just say, this is pretty fucking cool that it works this way. Let's just lean into this. Yeah. I, I think that it, it's, it's almost like it, this is the thing with the, I think the potential problem with the way that education and educational systems is portrayed, you know, it just tends to carry out for people in any profession with like, you know, personal training, therapy, whatever. It's very much like we, like you said, like we don't get into that stuff. I would call it almost to like the, the right brain stuff, like the emotion, the emotional state, like all this stuff you can't put your finger on. This is exactly why this works. Cause if we don't know exactly why it works. How can we teach it? Right. And so, and why is it in the curriculum and the, you know, the decentralization of education through podcasting and online courses and all that stuff, I think is, is really helpful for understanding this. And in some ways, I almost feel like it, maybe it's okay that you don't understand it too. Like it, it, if in the sense that we want to learn everything, but <laughs> at, at some point, I mean, and I'm like as curious as it could, you know, as on the scale of wanting to know everything, I, I'm, I'm pretty far up there, but it's one of those things where it, it's, I, maybe it's how you approach the human body and it's problem solving ability, but it's just like, look, this is something that's special that, that right now we don't understand. And that almost gives it even more of a power to it. And yes, there's all this, you know, there's other ways to quantify and whatnot. And I, for me personally, actually, if I, I think it would help my coaching growth on a level, like depending on who I'm working with, but to do a little more technology stuff. Like if I was going to go and I was working with like college basketball, yeah, I better learn some force plate stuff a little bit better. I better learn GPS better. <laughs> you know, that would really help me out right now. Working with high school athletes, middle school, that stuff is, or, or like, or like a five-year-old soccer team. Like that's pretty much the bottom of the list. And, but I think that's good. Like, I think we should uh, it's very easy to, to almost pick a side and say, well, I'm on the ancestral side, but it's like, well, technology is, is helpful. Like we need to learn to, to, to really grasp how this can benefit us, but we also cannot lose what makes us human beings. And that's why, like Michael Zuiful has said, and I believe like everyone should work with kids. Everyone should yeah, work with those five-year-olds where as soon as they aren't laughing and playing and you see like the, the ADD kids starting to like wander around. It's like, all right, like let's, let's, let's find a way to keep you engaged. That is a valuable skill. And that's for the vast majority of people, coaches, I think that skill is the most important. And then learning the, yes, let's interpret the data. Let's understand workloads. Let's understand what direction we're heading with keeping you healthy and on the court player assets. So it's, it's a, it's an important balance, but yeah, right now it's been definitely the ancestral parts, but a really big one for me right now. So I'm going to, I'm going to make a statement. You tell me if you agree or disagree, and I'll let you elaborate to some extent, because I do want to keep us on track. I know we're both on finite time and we have a lot of topics to cover, or maybe that those just get saved for round two and three. But uh, thinking about the, the role of a trainer, the role of a coach, it seems to me that with what we're discussing, really the role becomes about knowing which key performance indicators actually would trend an athlete or a client towards their goals and tracking those over tracking those at regular intervals as you impose these different training modalities which ought to trend towards kind of as little structure as necessary like we're optimizing for a little bit of 
free motor learning. We're embracing a little bit of chaos. We're not trying to overstructure things, but we're using the key performance indicators every two weeks, every four weeks, every six weeks to make sure that we're making the change that we want. Like if you're working with a body recomposition client, which I know is not a lot of what you do, but like we want to be sure like body weight and uh, percent fat is trending down. If you're working with an athlete that wants to take some amount of time off their 40, like probably a 10 meter fly would be a reasonable thing to check in on. Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, that's, that is really important because uh, the statement what's measured gets managed. And that's something that I think for me, that's something that I've, I've worked on in terms of like when I'm in the team setting or when I'm in person online, it's easy, like online clients. Cause they, a lot of times they're, they're, they're doing track competitions for the track people I work with, or they're timing workouts, a lot of times tempo. So that's the stuff that gets measured or they're testing their vertical. So that, that innately will get measured. I mean, if you play basketball, you're going to measure it basically every time you go out, you know, you're, and sometimes the best measurement comes when it's not a formal measurement necessarily. However, I am like, I think about, sometimes I almost have to pause and think about, well, what are my standards? Because I, I do actually, one of the things I've really been into is I'm almost kind of known as like the, the lower leg foot guy at the gym I work with. So kids who have an, like a history of like, maybe they've had some shin splints type stuff or those, you know, whatever lower limb pain, a history of that, just trying to get, you know, their biomechanics down, lower legs stronger. I have a really, really good success rate and track record with injury prevention with that group, like to the point where they're running constantly doing their work with very little, very little or zero symptoms. And they're so able to keep them very robust. And I'm like, well, what I, I know subconsciously, I think where I'm taking them towards, which is uh, like, if I had to say, well, what are these standards? It's because it's funny. Once you get into balance, it's like, well, what do I say? Like, it's, can you stand on PVC pipes on, uh, like a, like a rubber hard ground without anything and, and basically be able to move your feet side to side for at least a minute. Like you should be able to do that. If you can't do that, there's a problem. Same thing with like the circular balance discs that I'll use. You should be able to stand there on a hard ground with two posts and be able to at least do squats and, 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 and we'll work our way up. We'll start with the PVC pipes on the turf and then, you know, just move on and so forth. So it's like, well, how do you put a number on that? We'll just, well, you should be able to do this. Uh, I, you know, otherwise I'll say like that there's some stuff I really like, uh, that I am do kind of draw standards on. This is just from baseline human like work is you should be able to do 53 way hip circles, which is like standing barefoot on one leg and you're moving your other leg straight in a circle around different directions, front side and back. And you should be able to do 50 without putting the other foot down. You should be able to do that. Um, so there is, I definitely have some standards that are at least in my head. I do think some, there is probably value in saying, and I think from a marketing perspective, we've seen this hit these standards and you can do this, you know, people. Whether you are building strength or building back stronger, Anchor provides the portable space saving cable trainer that is powering athletes training across the world of sports and performance. The company's newest product, the Anchor Pro, is assembled in the USA and delivers a professional-grade cable training experience at a fraction of the cost of a traditional cable machine. Visit ancoretraining.com and get 10% off your Anchor Pro order when you use the code MTLP at checkout. Anchor. Train without limits. Um, so there is, I definitely have some standards that are at least in my head. I do think some, there is probably value in saying, 
And I think from a marketing perspective, we've seen this hit these standards and you can do this. You know, people will, will say that I, it's important to set those standards wherever the athlete is at. The trick becomes, um, I think, so that would be more like just the general human function side. I also like being able to crawl a certain distance and do things like that. But the performance side, it gets interesting. And yeah, that is where you get into the KPIs. It's like, if you are going to sprint this fast or jump this high, here's some KPIs you should be able to do, but those won't be the same for everybody. You have narrow, wide ISAs, elastic, more muscular. And I found that I, I actually don't get too, um, I don't know. I, I tend not to get too hard, hard on, you should be able to do X, Y, Z. And I think that more evolves around me thinking back in the day, well, if I can lift this much, this is what I'm doing, high jump and triple jump. If I can, and we've talked about this, right? Like if I can squat this, if I can clean this, well, that correlates with this. Like, and it, and I did that with the lifting and then it didn't correlate. In fact, it kind of negatively correlated. And so just, I, I if I'm going to throw out a standard, I need to be very mindful. Uh, but like, yeah, if you're trying to be better at something, you do need to measure that thing often. Like if I want to be faster, I need to measure the fly 10. I like every other week, at least, you know, there needs to be a frequency and a regularity that otherwise you are kind of just, you aren't giving the the brain a, an anchor. You aren't giving an, an anchor and intention. We need intentions to move forward. So there should be a goal, a singular goal, at least that's driving us. And then how we lay out the KPIs, I think is kind of a, that's, there's an art form to that. Yeah. And I, I, and this might just stem from intellectual insecurity on my part, but like in, in my realm, Cause I like doing weird and crazy shit like you do, right? Like I'm, I'm, I'm very, very interested in alternative means of garnering motion improvements, mobility improvements, motor control improvements, that kind of thing. But I know that because of my work with uh, like PRI based stuff and Bill Hartman's kind of, you know, expansion compression model, I can always go back to table tests, like how a person is moving at various joints and say, was this intervention effective or not effective? And that's, you know, that's a little bit easier to show than something like pain, which might be ephemeral, um, might be chemical in nature, and it's not going to go away for a few days anyhow. But I felt, I feel like consistency in my checking ranges of motion or another KPI gives me a little bit more leeway to get sort of more wild and crazy with my interventions. So long as I demonstrate a result on the back end, right? It's that classic ABA testing. Cause I, I do think if, if you're doing things seen as heretical by the conventional strength and conditioning establishment, the onus is on you to, to, to demonstrate to the, the client, the athlete, the family, the institution that your methods are effective. You can't just do weird shit for weird shit's sake. Mm -hmm. Yes. You have to measure, you have to be able to back it up. And that's where it's like even playing a game and say running a fly, a 20 meter sprint. We played this game for the warmup, which I, hopefully that's not heretical. I mean, I think it's becoming more commonplace. And this guy drops 7%. How do you argue with that? You know? And so with you with the, having the, the therapist, you know, tool kit, uh, kit as well. And I know you're way better at the range of motion. I mean, I'm, I still like, I know one of the questions you have is what have I learned from the Bill Hartman group and, 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 and all that. And I'm, I'm still learning a ton. I honestly haven't even gotten to really using range of motion tests to back up there. I'm still, I'm almost on a different, like, I don't know, you have categories of how you measure and things like that. So, but yeah, being able to measure for sure. I, I whatever your realm is, if it's out pure outputs, functional ability, whatnot. 
Because I think if you if you don't have confidence in your ability to measure the thing that's salient to the client, then you'll default on whatever the institutional norm is, right? So from a physical therapy standpoint, just because I think it's it's even therapists and even trainers that listen to this podcast. Also, hi guys, thanks for listening. Um, from a therapist standpoint, you know we're talking about things like terminal knee extensions for knee pain, clamshells for hip pain, uh, transverse abdominus work for low back pain, like these tried and true things that have just been around for thirty or forty years. That in my opinion have very, very low efficacy compared to a whole host of other things that we could be doing from a performance standpoint. It's like, it's getting people stronger. It's the just get stronger thing that irritates me and Michelle and probably Joel so much where you've chosen a KPI that isn't, isn't a KPI that should be tracked, but because you know, it's a thing that's easily improvable. It makes it look like, you know what you're doing. It makes it look like you're doing a good job. And then when the client doesn't get the outcome that, that they want, you're allowed to throw your hands up in the air and say, well, I improved your glute media strength from a two plus out of five to a four minus out of five. So I don't know. Dude, that's it. That's, that's, that's it on rehab. That's it on speed training too, without like, Without question, um, I, that's something that had really irritated me for a long time is coaches will have all these drills in their toolkit, like say, like just like the clamshell, here's the A skip, you know, or whatever, like here's all these drills. And then when the athlete doesn't get faster, usually what is said after all these, you know, traditional sprint drills that I would put in the same bucket as, oh, yeah, you got your clamshells, your TKs is, oh, well, you just need to, to do those drills more. You know, you just need to make it so you're doing that when you actually run or something, which it will make you slower if you actually do some of that stuff when you run. And so there's always this out. And that's, I think, part of the reason that I have kind of, uh, to me, the, even this, uh, this clinic with the Darien that, uh, bar that I was uh, hanging out uh, at on Sunday, they were going through a lot of these, these athletes were in and everyone was kind of working with athletes and taking through drills. All I cared about was watching the athletes run outside. Like that's literally all I wanted to see. How do you sprint? That's all I care about right now <laughs> because it's, it's all ultimately the drills and the little chunks can make it easier for, I think people who don't have as much experience or knowledge to say, Hey, let's do this drill really well. But all that matters is, did you get better? And that's where, with the sprinting, I'll oftentimes, I, I love like, um, I don't know how you would liken this in therapy, but I like, uh, like bleed runs where it's like, okay. Let's run. Um, we're going to, all right. So let's say you think that straight leg bounding is going to make you faster and maybe it will. Let's find out. Let's video your sprinting. What does it look like? What's your best race look like or your fastest time look like now do a bleed where you do 20 minutes of straight leg bounding, then sprint for 20 meters, then go back to straight leg bounding for 20 and just, you know, contrast it. And let's notice what the impact that that drill had on your running. And then maybe let's say, how does that feel? Okay. Take that feeling into sprinting. Oh, you sprinted slower. Oh, well, it's because that drill actually wasn't this part of the drill that you're feeling isn't connecting with your run. So let's do something else. And so you always have to connect it right back into the skill that you're doing in the session. In my opinion, if you're not doing connecting it into the holistic element in the session, then you can just get carried away for drills at the sake of drills, this ideal that someone says is the right way to sprint. And then you, you make the, the sprinting more about the drill than actually human biomechanics. And so that's why I think, yeah. It, so that's from the performance end of things. I, I think it's a, I'm sure it could be carried away anywhere. Yeah. And I mean, what you're describing, what I'm describing is just classic ABA testing, like no test a do intervention B retest test a. And like that, that is like that 
that recurs pretty much in every industry. And that's sort of, that's, that's a best practice. And that allows you to experiment within your own framework to determine that, to determine whatever interventions you do, if they have efficacy or not. So just because we are running up on time and, and, and there, there are a few things that I just want to get your quick thoughts on. Let's do like a quasi lightning round. So I'm going to, sure. I'm going to, I'm going to give you a topic. Uh, I'm going to try to keep you to let's, let's say 60 seconds or less which might be unfair given some of these topics. Um, but you let me know kind of whatever, whatever is top of mind when I give you the prompt. Sound good? Sounds good. Uh, this is good for me too. So I, I, I'm trying to work on being more concise. So this will be fantastic. Biggest misconception about foot training? Um, I guess what pops to mind is short foot. I don't know. Just that like just, it's the toes are actually, and the way the toes work uh, is, is critical. And, and not, not from a, you don't want to grip the toes, but the way the toes and the tensegrity and the arch of the foot works to me is a lot more important than bring these two points of your foot together. I've gotten so much more out of that with people, with athletes than, um, than short foot type stuff. So that's what I would probably say that. I'm proud of you. I was like 30 seconds. Yeah. Uh, the, the use case of minimalist footwear and the use case of built up shoes with orthotics. Ah, yes. So. I guess maybe I'll just talk about um, yeah, the spectrum of that as I think it's so easy to say everyone should go barefoot. You have to wear minimalist shoes. But And I'm writing this foot book that eventually will be done. Uh, and in going through, I really, when I'm doing these chapters, I, I have this like pour over absolutely everything mentality and I have to empty, empty my cup because it's so easy to say orthotics are stupid. You have to go minimalist. I mean, yes, that is the goal. That is the ideal. But guess what? If your feet don't work, if your arches don't work very well, if your toes are not very good at doing certain things and your toes are gripping all the time, or, or you just don't have the right pressures and you go minimal, there's a very, very good chance that you will injure yourself. Uh, it happens a lot. If you look at the research in these studies, it happens a lot. So it's the, the key is just the transition. The key is not so much even it is the ultimate goal is minimalist, but the question is more what is going on with the foot? What's the tensegrity look like in the foot? What does a good athletic foot look like and do? So you have to know a lot about that before you can just say, get into these, this footwear. Because for people whose arches don't work, orthotics actually do something. I'm sure I don't actually have that much experience with working with people who've been recently prescribed the orthotics. I don't, you know, but just from a general principle's sake, um, it's a spectrum. And so you just have to train the foot first. Yep. And I'm, by the way, I've been, I've been looking forward to this foot book for like two years now, man. <laughs> you've, you've been teasing it for a while. Um, what I would add to that is from a rehab perspective, I see far more success with built up shoes and orthotics in reclaiming range of motion, getting people comfortable from a performance standpoint. I see way more success trending people out of built up shoes and into more minimalist footwear with the possible exception being longer distance running where we're not sure. Like if a person's structure is so far gone that they need a little bit more yeah. support, um, to race like a good half marathon. I've, I've seen that work really, really well, but pretty much no one's going to sprint their fastest in built up shoes. Um, yes. and probably there isn't a single person I work that I work with that going barefoot uh, all the time on all surfaces that they're exposed to in America circa 2021 yeah. is necessarily a good idea. Yeah. Yeah. And last thing with that is, yeah, artificial shoes for artificial surfaces is I think is I saw Katie Bowman in one of her books, like, yes, if you're going to run trails, yeah, minimal is cool because it's like natural. <laughs> Concrete is not natural. So I think that's important to keep in mind. Easiest way to expose a older gen pop client to elastic power jump pace, jump based training. Well, it depends if they want to, you know, I would say it just depends on what their goals are, but as per what I was saying before about experiencing and not just training, let's just say they, they just want to be more athletic. Hey, I want to be more athletic. 
I love parkour stuff. It's just uh, to the level. Yeah. Right. So if it's someone who, and when I was at Rafe Kelly's return of the source, there was three different groups there that were out. There was the really athletic group, the, in the middle group and the group that was a little bit older individuals, lower level who just did lower level stuff, lower level, fun jumps over rocks and logs and things like that. So to be honest, I, for me, if someone wants to get better at that, I'd say I would start with a lot of like basic, like jump roping, just, just let's just build the feet up with some low level jump roping. You should be able to do this for several minutes, no problem. But then once we're beyond that rudimentary level, let's, let's have fun with this. Let's, let's throw some boxes out, some different hurdles and let's see what you can do. And let's enjoy this process. I love that. Uh, and this will be the last lightning round and then we'll, we'll kind of close that with some summative thoughts, but Again, it's similar to the orthotics versus minimalist question. Uh, use case for turned out feet, use case for straight feet. How do you think about that? Yeah, so I'll just talk about that. Uh, there's there is some things that I am not that good at. So honestly, like the the where are the compensations coming from and how is this a compensation? I'm not that great at. I mean, I, I so where I look at it a little bit more is, although there are some things, but that uh, for example, I was working with a a cross country runner this past year, who was a former competitive, like jump roper in her young years, which caused a functional turning into the feet to create stiffness. It's crazy, but that does not work well in running cross country, especially when you're so like turned in like that. So that was its own story. But, um, to me, it, uh, just a like adaptation. Why, why did the athlete get that way from an adaptation perspective as I would look at. And so more linear athletes. So an athlete who has a very linear style, uh, is going to be benefit from a little bit of turnout because that benefits early acceleration. Uh, as long as it's not like, um, as long as they could still supinate well in the acceleration, it, there's, there's different kinds of turnouts, but, but I would say that sprinter who is fast and functional or someone like LeBron James, right. Turned out feet does just fine. He's more of a linear athlete. Someone whose feet are a little bit more straight ahead may have got that way. Maybe they just grew up from age three playing basketball and cutting side to side. It's a more, uh, cornering type strategy. So it's like a more, it's a strategy that might not might fit for more of a, I'm going to turn on a dime type type setup, or maybe it's a way that the athlete tried to create stiffness. Like if they were a jump roper from an early age. So I just, I do like to think about it from that perspective in terms of like the functional, the way the athlete plays their sport, if they're not hurt and they're like this, you know, I like to think of it that way. What sport did you play? How did you get that way to adapt? Um, you know, outside of, um, all the, 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 the fine compensation mechanisms that lead to that type of presentation. This has been, I mean, this has been a pet interest for me since before I decided to go to physical therapy school. Like we're talking like 2008, 2009, just as a, as an often injured uh, middle distance runner, trying to figure out like why the hell I kept getting injured and, and just note like kind of like you noticing how people were running and the fact that like people's foot orientation was wildly different, often asymmetrical. And that led me down the path of like, oh, okay, so that's a problem. And then very recently, like embarrassingly recently, I've come to the the, you know, come to the conclusion that like, it's, it really is not a problem un unless it's a problem. And yeah. talking with David Gray about this a couple of weeks ago, which will be one, one of our early season two episodes. Um, he had mentioned that, you know, what he's looking for in feet, especially with like linear, uh, like, like walking, running, sprinting is the feet just need to be able to experience a full supination of full pronation. And the listener, like if you're, if you're out walking right now, you can try this, like look down at your feet the way they normally are. Keep walking. Now try to aggressively turn them in 
And what you'll notice is your feet start in a very, very supinated position. Um, and they won't be able to pronate that effectively. If you take a couple steps, shake that out and turn your feet as far out as they'll go, they kind of start in a pronated position. So they're not going to, they're not going to supinate well because of the pronated position and they can't really pronate any further because they start in a pronated position. So it's like, what is the foot inclination that allows, um, not just the foot, but like the, the leg, the pelvis, the rest of the body. Cause I know Gary Ward and David Gray are big into this, like whole body supination and pronation phenomenon. What is that foot orientation that enables that? And I think very commonly what we'll see with like an atypical foot presentation with an athlete is they've gotten that way because that is the correct orientation for their structure, or they're trying to compensate around pain. And so, I mean, I, I, I love your answer and, and it was right around that 60 second time point where, um, it's so much more complicated than having just saying like, Hey, straighten out your feet or even that's, the converse of, Hey, everyone should be running with turned out feet. Cause I think that's problematic as well. Unless your body does it automatically. It's you're going to compensate to like, like people who, whose feet are out and someone says, Oh, just walk with your toes ahead. That's a compensation. You're putting a compensation on a compensation. Now it's, um, like, again, this is where you respect the body. The body is a miracle. It did something for a reason. It was trying to adapt to something. So we have to almost have that same level, really almost that high level of intelligence to understand from a fine-tuned perspective if we actually should make a change and how we should go about doing that. Yeah. And I, and I think uh, it's funny, I was just listening to a podcast with my buddy Lance Goyke and they were talking about kind of diagnosing these movement problems. And there's, there's areas of the body where we want rotation to occur, where like rotation naturally occurs really, really well. Um, certain aspects of the foot, uh, definitely the hip and pelvis and definitely the thorax. And it's like when rotation does not occur in those areas, then we get these compensatory rotations. And, you know, I, th I think in Bill Hartman land, they would refer to these as like, um, like superficial compressive strategies, but you'll, you'll start to see like shin bones twist or like lower thigh bones twist or low backs twist in order to make up for rotations that are lacking elsewhere. So it's like, we want to, we want to make sure that parts of the body that are well-designed to do this rotation task, that they're the ones that actually receive this rotation task. Yeah. It's like, and I know we're out of time, but this would be a, a beautiful discussion for another 30 minutes. But like the idea of, is it, is it a health or a performance? And the, 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 if it's performance, an athlete is a track sprinter. You can see probably why their feet turned out automatically to fit with track sprinting. If it's a health issue, maybe, yeah, maybe they're really internally rotated. And the only way to go forward was for the feet to turn out in that situation. And that might be a different story. So yeah, understanding, like I have a client like that, you know, now, and it's just trying to figure out what should we do? Should we work with this? Yeah. It's a, it's a really interesting area and to make those distinctions on what's health, what's performance. Are they missing motion? Do they, or are they fine? And then knowing where to go with it. Ooh, can I hit you with one more lightning round before we <laughs> hop off? Yeah, sure thing. Uh, the use case for heavier barbell training. Ah, uh, um, I would say that's for me. Uh, I always want to do more with less. So I almost could just say that there's five seconds. There's my answer. Uh, go to heavy barbell training. To me, it's kind of like the last resort in the world of simple things. So did you, have you done all the other simple things? And, and to me, a simple thing too, is moderate barbell training. Did 60 to 80% of one RM get you where you need to go? How much more is 85% to 90 really going to help you in this situation? Um, and, and then doing that for a short period of time. But I would say if an athlete is a wide ISA, 
Uh, they are just a force profile type person like this, not even from a, just like they're mental almost like I am a force producer. Like I've worked with a lot of swimmers who are like that, who, uh, one who was an Olympic gold medalist who like this guy just needed to lift heavy, not even from a, probably just from a mental, it's kind of who he was like. And I think if you took that away from it, it would be a negative. However, um, so it's just looking at the whole athlete generally saying, let's always do more with less. And that for a longevity perspective, that's massive too, by the way, you could do well in a season with heavyweights probably in many cases, but what about two seasons? What about three? What about four? And, and what's How's the body going to compensate over that time period? So I would say just less with more, if the athlete really wants it, small doses, so see how it goes. Uh, but I'm always going to try to do more with less weight and just consistency with those moderate weights versus heavy, heavy barbell training. Yeah, that certainly seems very, very reasonable to me. So we've, uh, we're coming up on time here. Um, any, any other kind of closing or summative thoughts, um, places where people can learn more about you and, and what you do? Uh, sure thing. Yeah. So, uh, just fly sports on Twitter and Instagram, just fly performance podcast. And then, yeah, I, my online course, elastic essentials, uh, should be, we should be doing the next release in this January. So keep your Jan, January of 2022. So keep your eyes out for that one. Just a, it's basically like a way of, um, a thought process of training the human body based off free energy return. And so we're, we're uh, the, the bounce, the and it's load and explode, uh, abilities of the body. How do we hone that and really prioritize that throughout all the different modes of training that exist. And is, uh, is speed strength still for sale? Like you still selling those? Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Amazon's the best place for that right now. So yeah, go to amazon.com and you can type in speed strength, Joel Smith and should pop right up. Yeah. And I, I mentioned this in the intro, but that is, uh, that is my favorite resource for any coaches learning to like, like go a few levels deeper with uh, like actually getting people faster, like top end, top end speed mechanics. The first couple chapters alone, like the acceleration mechanics and the top end velocity mechanics were like, that's worth the price of the book. I, I appreciate that. I, those were totally rewritten, by the way, for the most part, after spending two or three years with a Darien bar <laughs> that totally, and, and it was a good transition. So I, I'm glad it turned out well. Well, shit, man. I want to, I want to thank you for taking the time. Uh, definitely want to have you on for round two or round three. And I know you're pretty busy with what you got going on in the middle of the country, but if you ever want to come out to Denver and have a sprint session or ultimate Frisbee or trail run or climbing, ha happy to have you. All, all the above would be fantastic. I'd love to get back to Denver sometime. Right on. All right, I'll talk to you later, man. All right. Thanks, Tim. Thank you for listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. The more positive reviews we get, the easier it becomes for fine movement professionals like you to find us, and the more time Michelle and I can devote to bringing on high-caliber guests and continuing to produce a high-quality show. If you're still listening, that means you're pretty cool. And that likely means your friends are pretty cool too. We'd love for them to become fans of the show. Spread the injury prevention love and the biomechanical knowledge by sharing a screenshot of your favorite episode on Instagram. Be sure to tag at Dr. Michelle Bolin and at Tim Richard DPT when you do. Now get out there and go train.